when you fail, when you sin, don't just beat yourself up and say, well, this time I'm gonna try hard. I'm gonna try harder, God, I promise. I'll never do it again. You know why that doesn't work? Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor James, bringing you truth and peace through God's word. In this episode, we talk about sin. Are you capable of preventing yourself from sinning? Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James, encouraging us with hope in our battle against ourselves. Thanks for listening. Tonight's teaching comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I, the Apostle Paul, I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it no longer is I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell inside of me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I just keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that is living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to be good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... He concludes, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is God's word. And uh, we're going to make it real simple tonight. I don't have a bunch of points for you uh, per se, but we're going to look at uh, essentially in the first part, we'll talk about the kind of analogy of the text, some, some other stories that help us better understand the text, and then we're going to explain the text itself, okay? So first of all, the analogy of the text. And I've recently been reading a uh, book, I've probably referenced this guy several times before, a uh, clinical psychotherapist by the name of Jordan B. Peterson. He's a very popular touring uh, uh, teacher right now, uh, has, a, has a best-selling book and actually I think a couple best-selling books, but the one I'm reading right now is actually called 12 Rules for Life, an Anti- Antidote to Chaos. And in chapter seven of that book, he actually goes by rules, not chapter. But in in rule seven, which he titles, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient, he said something that I thought was very relevant to what we're looking at here today in Romans chapter seven. And here's what he says. Life is indeed nasty, brutish, and short, as the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes so memorably remarked. But man's capacity for evil makes it worse. The story of Cain and Abel is one manifestation of the archetypal tale of the hostile brothers, hero, and adversary, the two elements of the human individual psyche, one aimed up at the good and the other down at hell itself. Abel is a hero, true, 
but a hero who was ultimately defeated by Cain. Abel could please God, which is not a trivial and unlikely, uh, an unlikely accomplishment, but he could not overcome human evil. For this reason, Abel is archetypally incomplete. Uh, Peterson is not a Christian, but interestingly, he goes on to his, conclude his point this way. He says, it took thousands of additional years for humanity to come up with anything else resembling a solution. The same issue emerges again in its culminating form in the story of Christ and his temptation by Satan. But this time, it's expressed more comprehensively and the hero wins. Now here's what he's saying. Again, this is a guy who's not a Christian, but he's a psychotherapist who is really bright when it comes to understanding both human behavior and narrative flow. And uh, Peterson is absolutely brilliant when it comes to kind of diagnosing what medieval theologians would refer to this as the tropological interpretation of a text. Now, we don't always talk about things that way, but we, modern people talk about the moral of a story, and that's what's kind of the moral of a story. And essentially what he's saying is in the story of Cain and Abel, you have two individuals, and we understand this as as a true historical account, but you have an account here Uh, by which you have uh, an older brother, Cain, who murders his younger brother, Abel, because he's jealous of him, because Abel was the one who presented a sacrifice to God that pleased God. And what Peterson would say is in those two brothers, united in that humanity, what you have is kind of a symbol of the two natures of humans kind of the good self and and the bad self. And uh, in other words, uh, you have two brothers who are sort of at war with one another in a sense. And Cain eventually kills Abel in this internal war. And Abel is sort of representative of that which is good, a natural knowledge of God, what we might call it, you know, what is good, what is true, what is right, a moral ethic that exists on every human heart, even a conscience. Uh, And that wars each and every day with an other self, the Cain self, that which has nothing to do with God's will and uh, is only self-interested, only wicked, only wants to destroy. And what Peterson is saying, what you hear in that story, uh, one one of the morals of that story is the evil self wins. When it's all said and done, the evil self seeks to kill the good self. Interesting. Um, It reminds me of something that St. Augustine once said in his confessions when he refers to the natural human state uh, in childhood. He said, as an adult, as a convert to Christianity, he he tells a story, it's kind of a famous story of when he was a kid. And thinking back on that story, that's when he first understood the impulse of human beings, the sinful impulse. Because he says, he tells this story of he and a couple of friends uh, decided that they were going to break into a neighbor's orchard and steal from all of their pear trees off the trees. And he says, I wasn't even hungry and I don't even really like pears. And I didn't end up eating the pears, I ended up throwing them all to the pigs. So why does he do it? The question arises, if you don't even like the fruit and you don't even want it and you're not hungry, why on earth would you do it? He says it's not due to peer pressure. He says he ended up doing it. Why? Because somebody told him not to. And that made him want to do it. And Augustine is saying something really profound there that I believe is universal about the human spirit, that when an authority tells us no, If we have a natural instinct that flares up against that no, 
then there's something, if that's true, there's something universally wicked about the natural fallen condition that we feel the need to fire back against the authorities in our lives and that is a basic human condition and impulse. The Bible or theologians would refer to this as original sin. Now, uh, late modernity in the Western world tried to get away from that idea. And basically what it tried to say is human beings in their default state is natural good. It's a, it's a fascinating conclusion to come to, particularly in the late 20th century after you've had a century where there's been more bloodshed in one century than all other prior centuries combined. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing, but this was in higher academics, this was absolutely the thing. Human beings are blank slates, they're neutral, they're basically good. And the reason that they sometimes do bad things is why? Because they live in environments that poke them and prod them and twist them and they're conditioned therefore to explode into doing bad things. This is kind of the, the basic normal understanding of human nature for the average person in, in 21st century Western culture. Uh, the, my, favorite, my favorite deconstruction of that and diffusion of that uh, actually is from a series of books that later became movies more famously, a movie that won all sorts of Academy Awards. I can't recommend it because it's kind of gory and graphic, but in the, in the early 90s, I think 91, uh, The Silence of the Lambs won all sorts of awards. And the, the whole movie, if you don't know what it is, it's basically, uh, the, the premise is, you have uh, two main characters, a Dr. Hannibal Lecter who is a ser notorious serial killer and seems to be the embodiment of pure evil. And he's being kind of leveraged by the FBI in order to solve some cases because he's brilliant. And there's a young kind of upstart FBI agent named Clarice, Officer Starling, who the whole, the whole series of books and, and movies are just kind of the dialogue back and forth between the two of them. And it's pretty, pretty brilliant. But there's one point where Clarice, who's this young kind of wide-eyed FBI agent, she says to him, what happened to you? You know, why are you so messed up? Who did something to you so terrible that leaves you so incredibly twisted and awful and made you the beast that you are? And Dr. Lecter, who is very, very brilliant, he says, oh, oh no, nothing happened to me. I happened. He says to her, you can't reduce me to a set of social influences. You can't give up on good and evil, Dr. Officer Starling, for the sake of behaviorism. Uh, you know, modern people think nothing is any, ever anybody's fault. They were coerced to do something. They were conditioned to do something. Somebody didn't love them enough and they were conditioned uh, along the way to do that. And he says, this, this is not, you know, what Dr. Lecter is saying, that, that is not the cause of the evil. That might be a, an occasion for the evil, but that's not the cause of the evil. The cause of the evil is that I'm human and therefore I'm capable of evil. Now, here's the reason why that statement is so incredibly terrifying. Because if Dr. Lecter does what he does, not because something terrible happened to him, but simply because he's human, then guess what Officer Starling has to also conclude about herself? Because she's human. She is also capable of tremendous evil and wickedness as well. And that is something that no human beings want to admit readily. In fact, a lot of human beings are in complete denial over this concept. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've done some counseling 
um, in which I, you know, either somebody, one spouse cheats on another or a child does something horrific and they get, they get kicked out of school or they end up getting thrown in jail. And uh, I'm working with an adult who says something along the lines of he or she would never do that. And I almost, I don't cringe externally because I know enough socially not to do that, but I cringe internally. Because I know when somebody says so-and-so, he or she would never do that, that is a gross underestimation of the brokenness of the human condition, of what we are all inherently capable of if we have something called sin living in us. Uh, A couple years ago, I listened to a series of sermons uh, that are just on Romans 7 by uh, Dr. Tim Keller. And were, they're brilliant. And I jotted down a, a thousand notes that I went back to later this, earlier this week and got from it. But he basically spends two entire sermons just on Romans 7, fleshing out the fact that uh, the, the story written by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Most people to some extent are familiar with Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, He says this story, and if I remember correctly, he even says that overtly Louis Stevenson was a Christian and he specifically was trying to write a novella based on what Paul is teaching in Romans 7 about the two natures that exist within humans. Uh, But basically, uh, he he tells a story, the story goes like this. Uh, in, In Jekyll and Hyde, you have a London legal practitioner who is investigating some occurrences that took place. And it it seems to boil down to this doctor, Dr. Uh, Henry Jekyll, and this mysterious sort of Mr. Hyde. And what actually takes place is they're the same individual, but this character, uh, basically, he can't enjoy life because he realizes he has two natures struggling inside of him. There's a war going on within himself. And see, the evil self is not allowed to enjoy life because that pesky good self is constantly making him feel guilty. And the good self is never actually allowed to enjoy life because that pesky evil self is constantly bombarding him with temptations. And uh, his conclusion is if I could somehow isolate those two selves, I could let them finally be free and independently enjoy life on their own. And so what he develops, he concocts in his laboratory this special potion, this like elixir that isolates the two individual selves so that he can be either Dr. Jekyll or this other half of him, which is called Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll essentially becomes who he anticipates that he's supposed to be, right? Mr. Hyde, on the other hand, is actually far worse He's far worse than anything that he would have expected him to be. He does way worse than he thought he was capable of. Not only that, not only is is Mr. Hyde worse than what he expected, he's also more powerful than he expected to such an extent that when the guy stops taking the potion, he begins to just start eating to default into Mr. Hyde. Which by the way, that's a kind of intentional Um, subtle insinuation by Lewis Stevenson when he calls him Hyde. It's spelled H-Y-D-E, but, uh, you know, Hyde is the root of hideous and Hyde is the root of hidden. And what he's trying to say is the evil that lurks within all humanity is naturally hit. We're, We're not aware of it. We don't realize how much evil actually exists inside of us. To every human being, sin is not just wrong, we're blind to how wrong we actually are by nature in our flesh. Well, it goes on and and eventually he realizes he's so wicked that he ends up murdering somebody. 
when he says enough is enough, I'm not gonna do it anymore. And he tries to assert his willpower to make changes in his life and it works for a little while. And it's like a couple of months that he's able to fight off Mr. Hyde and only live as Dr. Jekyll. But one day when he's sitting on a bench, he looks down and he sees his hands starting to tremble and he sees himself starting to transform and he just, without taking any potion, he just becomes Mr. Hyde. And the conclusion then is that he realizes this is his true self, this is his more powerful self and instead of letting the police eventually find him, he just kills himself and that's where the story comes to a conclusion. Now, what Robert Louis Stevenson, what Keller would say is Louis Stevenson is suggesting to you uh, you're supposed to think at the end of that story, am I capable of just as much wicked as that? Is that truly the story of my two selves? And what I'm telling you today is Jordan Peterson, St. Augustine, Hannibal Lecter, for that matter, I didn't even mention Sigmund Freud with his id and his superego, and Robert Louis Stevenson, and for the most part, the Apostle Paul is saying, yeah, that's exactly you. You are absolutely capable of that kind of evil and in fact the scariest people on planet earth are the people who don't realize they're completely unaware of the evil that they're actually capable of. C.S. Lewis had a fantastic quote about this where he says, if you were to ask Hitler if he was a good guy, he would say, yeah, of course I am. But if you were to ask Abraham Lincoln if he was a good, uh, a good guy, he would say, no, to a great degree, I am not. And what that tells us about the human nature is humanity is not just sinful. We're delusional to how sinful we actually are and the evil and wickedness that we're capable of. But the Apostle Paul teaches us something different. He says, we are reborn. And that gives us, doesn't just make us better in a sense, it makes us significantly more self-aware And here's what I'm going to teach in the text tonight. We're going to get through five points and I'm going to touch on each of them briefly. And the fifth point will have a couple applications and takeaways from it. But five things you see in this text that, uh, this is the 30,000 foot view of Romans 7. And uh, we're going to see in there, you find a Christian who is conflicted, a Christian who is very clearly a current Christian, which there has been some debate in this text about that, but this is a current Christian. It's not Paul talking about his past self, it's him in his current self. It is a sorrowful Christian, it is a saved Christian, and it is a growing Christian, okay? He's conflicted, he is current Christian, he is sorrowful, he's saved, and he's growing. Uh, here's what I mean, conflicted Christian. I'm not gonna read to you, reread to you all of the, that portion that we read earlier. Uh, But what I have for you there is about six different statements that all say the same basic thing from the Apostle Paul. He says, the good things in life that I really want to do, I can't seem to get myself always to do. And the bad things in life that I definitely don't want to do, for whatever reason, I keep keep, keep seem to slip into these things. Why does that happen? This is clearly a guy who is internally conflicted, a guy who internally is at war with himself. And this is the text more than any other in scripture, Romans chapter seven, where I started to realize that addiction functions almost, excuse me, sin functions almost exactly like addiction. How do I know that? Well, of all the people who I have worked with uh, in my life who are admitted addicts, they say almost verbatim the exact same types of things that the Apostle Paul says in this text. 
the good things that I know I'm supposed to be doing, I can't seem to motivate myself to do, and the bad things that I know I'm not supposed to do, these things I keep slipping into despite the fact that I don't want to. Uh, I remember a woman that I was ministering to early in my ministry, and so I think I was sure I was kind of naive about the whole thing, uh, but she had a gambling addiction. And uh, she, I remember talking to her in my office once, and she was literally crying and trembling and like shaking. And she, she literally at one point just burst out, I can't stop. And the only thing I knew, you know, at that point to do was like, we, we tried to get her into a recovery program very quickly, which I think was the right thing to do. But what was, you know what, I was young enough and naive enough at the time to, I didn't say this, I thought it in my head, what do you mean you can't stop? You know, like for her to go to the place that was her preferred place to gamble, she had to make a thousand different decisions in order to get to that spot. So if you cut off any one of those decisions along the way, you would, you would stop gambling. What do you mean you can't stop? What I didn't fully appreciate at the time is this wasn't simply free will decisions that she was making, but the decisions that she was making in her life were completely enslaved to the power of the sinful condition. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear. He gives a great summary of everything that he says in Romans chapter seven in one single passage in Galatians 5.17. And there he says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are, present tense, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. So within a Christian, you have this internal turmoil and conflict going on uh, between the two selves. Secondly, this is a current Christian. Now, there actually has been a lot written about this and debated about this throughout history. Uh, and the question goes like this, how is it that the Apostle Paul in a supposed regenerate state can continue to sin in the way that he's describing here? And Short answer to that is, I would say, even though there's been a lot of wise and I think faithful Christians who have come to the conclusion that maybe Paul is talking about his former self, I think it's very evident from the text that he's talking about his current self. And there's two very clear textual reasons for that. For starters, in verses one through 13, the ones we read a few moments ago, he's speaking in the past tense. So if you pay attention to the tenses by which he's referring to himself, verses one to 13 are past tense, verses 14 to 25 are present tense. There must be some change that's going on there. And what most theologians throughout history, including Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and a bunch of other really good Bible scholars have said is verses one through 13 are Paul pre-conversion. Verses 14 through 25 are Paul post-conversion. But you'll notice which of them is struggling with sin? Both of them. He says, in the past I was struggling with sin and in my regenerate, reborn state, I'm still struggling with sin. So the difference between therefore somebody pre-conversion and somebody post-conversion is not that the person pre-conversion struggles all the time with sin and can't seem to get over it and somebody post-conversion, they have this life of inner serenity in which, by which they're able to trample over every temptation that they might face in life. No, 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 that is not the mark of a Christian. Verses one through 13 are an individual who is struggling with sin and you know what he's turning to in order to try to get over his sin? The law. And he says, if I just ramp up my willpower and try a little harder, maybe I can take care of the sin in my life. 
That's Paul pre-conversion. Paul post-conversion is a guy who is also still struggling with sin, and at the end of it all, what did he say at the end of our text? What a wretched man I am. Who can save me from all of this? He He stopped trying to save himself. What a wretched man I am. Look at all the sin. Who can possibly save me from all this? Thanks be to God because he gives me victory through the grace of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the difference between the pre-convert and the post-convert. It's not who struggles with sin. It's where you turn because you know you struggle with sin. See? The other clue, this is just, I think, kind of undeniable in the text. In verse 22, he says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Simply put, a non-believer cannot say that. Somebody, the the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 is not talking about his pre-regenerate self because a non-believer cannot make that statement. Paul's gonna say uh, one chapter later in Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it even do so. You cannot say, somebody in their natural state cannot say, I delight in God's law. Only somebody who has been born again by water and the spirit can say that, okay? So, This is a conflicted Christian, but he's still, the conflict doesn't make him not a Christian. He's a current Christian, he's a conflicted Christian, he's a sorrowful Christian. And I'm not even really gonna spend any time on this because this is self-evident. Look at what he says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's saying, look, I have tons of sin in my life that I cannot get over, and furthermore, I am incapable of saving myself. He's entirely sorrowful and repentant. This is also then a saved Christian, which we see in verse 25. And I'm actually gonna show you this quick here. I don't expect you to process the Greek, but I'm just gonna show it to you real quick because I think it's beautiful. What he literally says here in verses 24 and the beginning of 25 is, Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then in verse 25, he starts out by saying, charis dei. Now, typically in your English translations, like the NIV 2011, it's translated, but thanks be to God who gives us victory in Christ Jesus. That's a good translation. That's a perfectly legitimate translation. But when I see the word charis in Greek, the very first thing that comes to mind is the first translation of that for me is grace. Charis is grace. Charis is God's undeserved love for me. And so as the Apostle Paul is despairing and saying, who could possibly rescue me from all the wretchedness that I am as a human being? And he pauses and says, ah, but grace. But the grace of God that comes in Christ Jesus absolutely can, not only can it save me, it absolutely does and has saved me. See, when I rightly despair of myself, and I do sometimes, I don't need you to minimize my sin and dismiss it and say everybody does it and it's not that big of a deal. And furthermore, I also don't need you to tell me, well, get back up in the saddle and try again and try a little bit harder next time. No, what I actually need somebody to do is redirect my eyes from myself to my Lord and Savior Jesus who has loved me undeservedly and paid for all of that sin. The solution is in who he is, not in who I am. The solution is in what he does, not in what I do. And a Christian is not a basically good person. A Christian is not a person who's simply trying hard to clean up their life. A Christian is someone who believes that they are a sinner that is saved exclusively by the grace that comes in their Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you believe that, if you believe that inevitably, 
organically, eventually, and inevitably, you will grow. And the Apostle Paul concludes the text by saying, so then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. Here's the three takeaways I want you to grab here tonight, okay? These, you could call them application points or takeaways or whatever. Number one, all of life is repentance. This, some of you this sounds familiar to because this is the very first and arguably most important of Luther's 95 theses. It's also completely countercultural. The idea that the way to progress in life is to repent. The modern person, when you've been born and raised in a culture that essentially says, your problem is you need to be more true to yourself. You need to embrace the true you. That's what modern belief says. Paul says the exact opposite. The, the, the outcome, the obstacle to becoming the true you is not that you're not embracing the true you, true you enough. The problem is that you're not rejecting the natural flesh and the original you nearly enough. See, the, pro, the way to progress is, according to the Apostle Paul, through repentance. And honestly, if you just back up and think about that, it's highly logical too. Because you can't actually grow unless you're willing to admit some fault. As a musician, you can't start playing right notes if you're completely proud and unwilling to admit that you've played some wrong notes. See? Uh, the only way to grow is I have to acknowledge some fault. Now, it's a lot easier to acknowledge your fault if you realize that your salvation does not depend on your perfect performance. In other words, if you understand that salvation comes freely through the gift and grace of Jesus Christ, it becomes much, much, much easier to admit, yeah, I, mistake, I make mistakes all the time. The Apostle Paul is saying in the first 13 verses of Romans 7, no matter how much good I did, I was not able to overcome the evil in my life. I was not able to win the war. Paul is saying in verses 14 to 25, no matter how much bad I do, I cannot lose this war ultimately because Jesus Christ won it at the cross for me. And that takes the pressure off. And if the pressure's off, then I can finally be honest with myself about myself. And if I can finally be honest with myself about myself, I can actually acknowledge some fault in my life. And if I can actually acknowledge fault in my life, you know, I can actually start growing. See how this works? If, G if your salvation is not your performance, but it's Christ's righteousness, then you can start actually being honest and stop living so defensively. And if you can be honest, then you can admit fault. And if you can admit fault, then you can actually start to grow. And therefore, justification by grace through faith allows you to be honest to yourself and repent, which leads to growth. Second point, all of life is repentance. Secondly, God is glorified in your struggle. I know a lot of Christians who, when they struggle with sin, almost wonder if this somehow invalidates who they are as a Christian. I, I get it, I've probably felt that way many times myself, but think about, the, think about it like this. If we never struggled with temptation, you know that pesky sin in your life that you've asked God a thousand times to take away and you once in a while you just keep slipping into it? If you never struggled with temptation, an even greater temptation might come along, which is actually even more spiritually dangerous, which is the temptation of pride and self-sufficiency. So while God doesn't cause the struggle in your life per se, he might very well allow it in order to keep you humble, in order to keep you dependent, and in order to highlight better his glory and his power and his grace in the entire process. 
See, it, it's interesting to think that God actually could have created just automatons to do his bidding. If God wanted creatures who just perfectly obeyed all the time, like mechanically, he could have created robots to do exactly that and it would have been fine. But God wasn't desiring robots to do his bidding. He was desiring creatures to have relationship with. And therefore, it necessitated that he gave them a free will. But when you give creatures some kind of free will, it can get messy and inconsistent very quickly. And yet, you see, whenever you repent, whenever you acknowledge the fault and you get back up and, and say, but God, look at what you've done for me. Let me thank you for the forgiveness. It proves that the reciprocated in love in your life outweighs the desires of the sinful fallen flesh. It is super common for Christians when they struggle with sin to at some point think I must be some kind of terrible, insincere, um, immature believer to have these kinds of struggles. And Romans 7 encourages us to understand that temptation and conflict with sin, even sometimes perhaps relapses into sin, are perfectly consistent with a growing Christian, okay? So all of life is repentance. God is glorified in your struggle. And here's probably the most important one. The key to growth in your life is not more willpower, but thanking God more. Here's what I mean. Paul is teaching that overcoming the sin that exists in life does not come from ratcheting up your willpower uh, and just attacking the old self. It actually comes from unconvincing or I'm gonna say deconverting, not just the sinful self, deconverting the moralist, deconverting the moralistic self. Um, now see, if, if you're a moralist, you can never admit how bad you really are. You can't repent, but you see, look at the steps, look at the waltz that Paul goes on here when he becomes a Christian. The three things he says at the end of our text are what? What a wretched man I am. I'm so broken, I'm so flawed, I'm so full of sin. The next thing he says is what? Who will rescue me? He has no delusion at this point. Because he knows he's so wretched, he has no delusion that he can save himself at this point anymore, but his salvation is gonna have to come from somebody doing something for him on the outside. And the third point in that waltz is he says, ah, grace, thanks be to God for the victory that he gives me through Christ Jesus who came into my life to freely forgive me and save me. Do you understand those three points? I have to admit I'm flawed. I have to see I can't do it for myself. Somebody's gonna have to come into my life who loves me undeservedly and does it for me. And it's not that that could possibly happen in my life. It's that that already did happen in my life 2,000 years ago. It's a done deal proven by the resurrection. Here's the secret. When you fail, I've done this a thousand times to myself and I'm, I'm, I'm learning, but I know you've done this a thousand times to yourself too. When you fail, when you sin, don't just beat yourself up and say, well, this time I'm gonna try hard. I'm gonna try harder, God, I promise. I'll never do it again. You know why that doesn't work? Because you know what got you into the sin in the first place? Obsessive self-focus. That's what leads to sin. Me first, obsessive self-focus. So why on earth would you think if you say I need to work on me a little bit more and self-focus a little bit more, that exact same impulse, if you ratchet up your self-focus, how do you think that's going to get you out of sin? That's the thing that got you into the sin in the first place. What is he saying? The thing that can actually get you out of 
the sin is less self-focus. The thing that can actually get you out, the power comes in shifting your attention to God's goodness. Spend more time and energy when you sin. Spend more time and energy instead of making promises to God. Spend more time and energy thanking God that he is never going to leave you no matter how much you sin because he nailed himself to you at the cross. Don't try harder, thank God more. There's your mantra. There's your t-shirt, all right? Don't try harder, thank God more. The gospel of our lesson is that even though the natural force, the natural flawed condition that works in your life, it's more Cain than Abel, and it's more Hyde than Jekyll, and it's more Lecter than Clarice, and it's more Hitler than Lincoln. The natural self inside you, the gospel is that at the cross, Jesus made a sacrifice that was so pleasing to God that every time he now looks at you, you are absolutely heaven in his sight. Meditate on that. Consider the love attached to that sacrifice. Understand that you cannot now lose the war because you are wrapped up in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is proven to you in his resurrection. And that knowledge and that belief will give you a tremendous supernatural power that organically, over time, eventually will lead to an amount in you winning more of those daily battles. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us to try for trying to win a war that you've already won. Instead, move your spirit to make us more grateful for who you are and what you've already done for us. And resting peacefully in your righteousness, let me fight the daily struggles, the daily battles to the glory of your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.